Thank you. Thank you, James. It's so good to be with you. As uh, James said, we, Marion and I are familiar with Bristol. We've been coming here for some years, really. Uh, we had family here. Uh, our daughter Esther and our husband were in um, uh, South Meads, lived there for many years, and uh, we were sort of visiting here from... I'm trying to remember the time, Marion. How long have we been coming to Bristol? We're trying to remember. To well, don't worry. Just, just estimate. <laughs> Ten, over 10 years, estimate. I'm, I'm bad at estimates. Marion's more precise, but I, she also needs warning uh, about a question. So, <laughs> so different characters. Um, that's fine. But it, it's lovely to come and see the church grow and develop and see the city grow and develop as well. So many people all over the place, so many new uh, housing estates and things, which is great because it means more people around to come to know Jesus, which is where we'll end up thinking and talking this morning, but we'll get there through looking at some verses in Isaiah. Now, I'm not even going to take you to one passage and read it. It's going to be just a little couple of snippets, really, a couple of verses when I get to needing them. So let me just briefly introduce you to what I think is a magnificent book in the Old Testament called Isaiah. It's a main, a, a, one of the major prophets. If you think of the prophets of the Old Testament, I would say uh, that Isaiah is like the Mount Everest of those prophets. It's, it's a magnificent great sort of mountain of wonderful truth sitting there in the middle of the range of prophets. And it, it, it has lots and lots of themes. Isaiah picks up lots of things, but he, he, everything focuses on how great God is. He, there's a word he uses for God, which in terms of English uh, means the completely set apart great one, the one who is in a league of his own. That's a sort of dictionary definition of the word he uses. And he used it, oh, nearly 30 times, but it's only used six other places, six other times in the Old Testament. So he really has it as a theme, what a big God we have and how great he is. And then he looks at uh, this God's mercy and salvation, and Isaiah introduces us to some incredible insights into the Messiah, King, servant King, who will one day come and bring salvation. Things that we read sometimes at Christmas and other times are embedded in Isaiah. It's a magnificent foretaste of what's to come when Jesus comes. And he touches also on the plan, the big, big plan that God has of salvation and redemption, which will touch all the nations. It's the gospel age. There's a lot there relevant to the gospel age, and it goes beyond that, really, to the new heavens, the new earth. The whole continuum of salvation and redemption is touched on in Isaiah. And uh, it, therefore, it is a book that the New Testament loves to refer to. Paul, I think, quotes more from Isaiah of Old Testament books than any other Old Testament book. Jesus, uh, I think, quotes second most from Isaiah. I think quotes from Psalms most, but Jesus also draws, and the Gospels draw from uh, quotes from Isaiah because it links in with the New Covenant, the Gospel Age, magnificently. And so it has a lot to speak to us. You could argue, and I think I do argue, I will argue, that it in some ways has more relevance to us than possibly its first audience, to which some of it must have been very mysterious and um, oblique. And then as we have met with Jesus and see who Jesus is and all that he's done as we see the Messiah, the King Saviour. It all begins to come together. Isaiah 53 makes a lot of sense with the New Testament gospel and after the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, So there's lots of stuff. You think this is a book for us uh, in many, many magnificent ways. And one theme that you do get a lot in Isaiah, and this is a beautiful one, is that God is a God of hope. He's a God of hope 
when it seems like there is no hope. He's a God who turns up in desert times. He brings streams in the desert. He brings revival when life has sagged, when almost there seems to be death everywhere. He is a God of restoration and revival and hope. And we're going to just taste that for a few minutes as we look at some Isaiah passages briefly. I'm going to talk about revival this morning, and I will have to try and explain it a little bit as I go along. don't want to do complicated on it, because we all know what the word revive means. You know, if someone is uh, completely unconscious and very ill and perhaps dying of thirst in a desert and lying there unconscious, you, you revive them, you bring them back to life and drink water and restore them. So we know what revival means, but that's a picture behind a lot of the stuff that Isaiah's writing about. I want to look at the individual, I want to look at the church, and I want to look at the nation. We'll do it briefly, otherwise it would be three hour long talks, which I can assure you it won't be. Don't worry, saw a few faces lose their smile for a minute. Three hour long talks. No, no, just we'll touch them, but I pray that God will speak to you out of it. So let's think about the individual. And as we do that, I want to read a verse in Isaiah 57, verse 15. This is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever and whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. You think, immediately, this is a big God, this is God. I just love it. I mean, it's almost poetry, poetic, isn't it? It just catches something of the awesome, transcendent otherness of God, the high and exalted one who lives forever, <laughs> whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place. And then, almost the shock, the surprise of the rest of this statement, but also, I live with, also, I live with, those with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. How powerful and how moving that, that God, the great creator, the one who has made all things, who is beyond our understanding really, says, I love to come near to you, particularly when you're humble and broken and lonely. And, and if, you, if you think of Jesus as God manifest in the flesh, as, as the clearest manifestation of God, that's exactly what you see when you watch Jesus at work and what he does in the New Testament, how he talks to people and the people he, he encounters, women at the well, lepers, all sorts, you know, the, the widow of Nain, you know, this is what our God is like. He's not an arrogant potentate. He has nothing to prove. He is the almighty one who made all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He's outside time. It all happens at once to him. He's now, he's I am. And yet, he loves to live and to meet with the one who is lowly and contrite. I mean, contrite, it's not a word we use very often, but just give you a little dictionary moment. Basically, that word could be translated bruised, discouraged, broken, cast down, humbled. God says, when you are like that, I will meet with you. The one who is bruised, discouraged, broken, cast down, then I will meet with you. If you look to me, I love to revive the contrite. And the lowly, which simply means small and unimportant, means modest. I, mean, I think most of us would feel that we perhaps are in that category. Not many of us would feel we're movers and shakers, the the ones who make stuff happen in the nation, and, and, or even in the city maybe. And I, I mean, maybe there are some people like that amongst us, wonderful. But actually, 
to meet with God, you need to be humble. You don't have to be humbled by circumstances, but you need to be humble. So in the Gospels, we meet people who were from the higher echelons just a little bit. We meet Joseph of Arimathea, who obviously had a fairly wealthy man who had the tomb that Jesus' body was laid in. Uh, Nicodemus, who was one of the Pharisaical group, but he wasn't of the same heart and spirit as the other Pharisees. But in order to meet with Jesus, they humbled themselves. They, that there was something that became lowly about them, which has nothing to do with their money or bank balance, but their attitude and their spirit. So the big, wonderful message this morning is, if you are humble, lowly, broken, bruised, discouraged, contrite, whatever that means, maybe about your own failures or others' failures or life in general, God will meet with you. He wants to meet with you. Let's take a New Testament passage to just build on that briefly. This is from John 7, and it's Jesus speaking. This is Jesus speaking to you this morning. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Loud voice. Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And now John, who's editing this and writing it, makes sure we get what he's talking about. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, John helps us, he interprets a bit. By this, he meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, capital S, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not been glor- yet been glorified. Now, I'm going to briefly do what John's done. Just, John says, I want you to get what he was talking about. He wasn't really talking about water, like a big bucket of water be thrown over you, or it'd be like a tap turned on or something crazy. It was a metaphor of something far more profound. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. But it was a picture, a metaphor that has relevance. It wasn't like a nice picture, no relevance. There'll be something gushing out of you. There'll be something soaking you. There'll be something that envelops you and rivers will flow from you. But it's the Spirit he was talking about. And he said at the moment, John says, at the moment Jesus said that, it was a prophetic statement a little more than it was an actual one because there was stuff that needed to happen before it could be absolutely clearly happening. He hadn't been glorified. And what John means by that is Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And once Jesus had completed his work, glorified, back at the Father's right hand, this can utterly happen, which is now. and was from the day of Pentecost onwards, but it is now. Jesus is glorified. Everything that needed to happen has happened for this to be a genuine invitation to every one of us this morning. If you're thirsty, that's the qualification, the only one. Jesus has done all the other qualification for this to happen, his death and resurrection. If you're thirsty, come, says Jesus, to me and drink. Come to me and ask for a drink. And it's obviously not going to be physical water, but it is going to be something as powerful and as real as a thirsty person having a lovely cold drink of water. And it's going to fill you up and flow out from you like rivers. What a picture of the Holy Spirit. What a glorious age you and I live in. Amen? Now, this is relevant to all of us this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, 
you, you may be interested, you probably are, to come here this morning. You may have come before, you may have gone to an Alpha. I don't know what you've done, but you, you haven't yet really got it or gone for it. Can I encourage you out of this very scripture? Do it today. Just do it. Just say, Lord Jesus, I come to you and I want you to fill me up. Come, he says, come to me, says Jesus. That's what you do. You can pray with someone afterwards. That would be excellent. But what you've got to do is come to Jesus. You could do it while we're worshipping later, even while I'm speaking. Say, Jesus, I want you to fill my life and flow through it by your spirit. And he'll do it. He'll do it. If you are a follower of Jesus, and I guess that's probably going to be true of the majority in this room, can I say to you, don't let's be content. Let's want more of him. Maybe you've been thirsty. I have. I've had times when I felt really dry, felt probably quite confused. Um, I think it was a bit like James shared with his marvellous verse, which was great. You know, I believe it some days and not other days. I think I've been there. I'm there. I mean, there's times when you feel you're disappointed with yourself, with the church, with something or life or whatever, and you're struggling. Those are times what to do. Come back to Jesus and drink. Say, God, fill me afresh. I need more of you. Jesus, I've said many times over my year, years as, in church leadership or preaching about myself, what I'm about to say to you now, is that although I've been a Christian for a long time, um, and I won't make, I'm not too good at maths, but it's well over 50 years, actually, what I would say is, when I hit one of these crises, I sort of get saved again. Now, I don't believe that happens, right? I believe I'm once saved and fully saved and the Holy Spirit's with me. Don't give me a theologically hard time at the end of this morning. But what I mean is, I come back to basics. Jesus, I need you. I know why I got into this. Lord, I realize my own sin. I realize the sin sickness of the world around us. I believe you're the only answer. I've seen you be the answer before. I come in my dryness and I say, fill me again. And actually, I would approach it that way more than an intellectual trying to sort it out though often I do that first until I think oh I'm getting myself in a knot here you know someone challenges you something challenges you in life you think oh I thought I believed that would happen that's not happening what's wrong oh is God real blur and you go blur come back to Jesus this is the formula and it's a wonderful one I'm thirsty please fill me again so there's personal revival let's move on fairly quickly to the church Here's a little passage in Isaiah 60. And this is about God's people. And it's about the old covenant people. But as I've said, we can easily link it with Jesus' people. That's who, that's who God's people in the new covenant, which we're in, are those who belong to Jesus. That's who God's people are, the Jesus people, the ones in Christ. So, the church, we can say. The church of Jesus. Now, this verse is for us then. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the people. How true that is. Come on, it's true. Just think of the darkness, the moral darkness, the political, social confusion. Just think, it's dark. People don't know. I mean, even stuff they find entertaining is largely dark. You know, I don't even watch it. And I'm sorry if those of you do and like it, but something like Game of Thrones, the bits I understand seem very dark and everybody loves it and says it's wonderful and some, you know, you think, what, what is the matter with you? You find that, sorry, you may say, 
I'm, I know I'm going to offend you, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, I mean, I could quote other things. You just think, it's, it's just like, what, what is it with us all? Well, it's, no, it's not pointing the finger. It's saying there's a, there's a confusion and a darkness over everybody. What's supposed to happen? People of God, arise and shine. Let's read the rest of it. Arise and shine, but the Lord rises upon you. This is not us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Well, we'll show them how happy and good we are. No, no, we need the God on us. The Lord rises upon you. His glory appears over you. Whoa, this is not, I mean, it doesn't make sense. You know, we're not ever going to be like impressive, whether it's, well, I'm not anyway, I, I won't speak for you. You know, whether it's intellectually or physically or, or, or in culture or class, but the glory of God can come on you. That the light of the gospel and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So there's, a, there's a, a sort of strategy here that is amazing and bamboozling and wonderful, is that, yes, we need to do stuff. Yes, we need to be clever and thoughtful and present things as well as possible and do all sorts of very, very good things, like help the poor and preach the gospel. But we also need that mysterious, wonderful anointing. We need the glory of God on us. <laughs> We need you, Lord. We want to arise and shine. So whatever we're doing, helping the poor, uh, talking to our friends at work, at the students in the college, wherever you are, we're sort of shining. And, and you don't really do it consciously. It's not really like, I need to shine this morning. Oh, right, let's put my makeup on really well. Sorry, I don't do that, generally speaking. But uh, I need to smile every, all, all day long or something. You know, we're not talking about that. We're talking about that you need just to glow with God. And, and, he, and he will do that. <laughs> and it does happen that way. And historically, and even in our own experience, to be fair, we will see, this is a bit mysterious, people say, you know, people come to you when they hit a crisis. They come to you for a prayer or something. You think, oh, I thought you didn't believe in God. And they're drawn. There's a magnetism. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your dawn. The church needs reviving. And... Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, one of the main drivers of revival is a deep, wholehearted concern for the condition of the church. Just hear that. A deep, wholehearted concern for the condition of the church. An awareness of who the church is and what she should be. And this isn't about criticizing anybody. I, I, I mean, I've, I've been around a lot. I've got good friends in other denominations and all sorts of things. I think I'm not satisfied with what any of the church in Britain is at. Us, New Frontiers, Commission, Baptists, Anglicans, they, I mean, I've got friends, I'm not hitting anybody, I'm hitting us all in the most hopefully positive way. We need more of God. We honestly, we all need to be able to shine. We need the glory of God on us. Don't you feel that? I do, I feel a dryness, not like oh, it's a bad time, just, I mean, there's loads of good things going on, to be honest, but I think, oh God, how, we are never going to hit Bristol without you. How are we going to do it? How are we going to, there's something that has a magnetism about it, it's beyond what we are capable of geeing ourselves up to, and you need to cry out, God, come on us. Come on your people, Lord. Come on your people. And then Tozer writing said, um, he said, Often there's unbelief in the church and you believe that God will bless at some other time in some other place some other people. 
It's an easy trap. But if, don't give in to that. Don't do that. Go into faith that anything, this is Tozer again, anything God promised and did at any time in any other place for anybody, God will do for us here if we will follow his conditions. Now, he says that linking to a verse I'm going to show you in a moment. It's, it's slightly an exposition from this verse. Might as well put it up, not be mysterious. 2 Chronicles 7.14. And, and Tozer's, it's a commentary by a guy called Tozer. You don't need to about that. But what he's saying, let's hear what he's saying before we even look at that verse. What he's saying is, it's, we can all be inclined to think, oh, we can read history, revivals, oh yeah, and that God blesses in other times, other places, you know, some magnificent stuff happening in South America or China or wherever it is, and it won't be here. But he says, anything God promised and did at another time in any other place for anybody else, God will do for us here, he says, if we will cry out to it. And so he, he would argue that this verse, 2 Chronicles 7.14, is something to take heed to. That if my people, that's the church, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now, it's an old covenant promise. I understand the context, but it's in our Bibles, and I believe it has principles for us. That, that actually, we primarily need to come and say God come on your church your church needs you please Lord please forgive us sin please cleanse us please restore us and heal our land break out in our day and in our generation and I believe that is essential to be part of a of a church that has hope in our day and age I think I think we are living at a strange time. I mean, I don't even need to go into it. We've got uh, weird stuff happening politically, internationally. Uh, it's almost daily. I mean, obviously the big Brexit thing, but also the state of things like with America and Russia and China. And, you know, you, you, you think, oh, this is a confusing mess. Well, in the midst of that, rather than going down the tube or getting all angry or signing a petition, why don't we cry out to God like 2 Chronicles 7 exhorts us to? God, come and break out and heal our land. When um, the Bible talks about, well, sorry, not the Bible, when we talk about revival, we talk about revival, I just want to explain what, we think, what we're thinking about. It's a bit of a, it could be a Christian jargon word. So if you're new to Christianity, what's he talking about revival? It's a, a word we use quite a bit when you, we look back at history and talk about things. But it also is a word that's been slightly misused or used differently in different contexts. I mean, to be honest, in America, it's quite often used just for a load of good meetings. We're having a revival this weekend. Sorry about the voice. And, and that basically means we're having really good meetings with lots of people there, which is lovely to have. But I think, classically, revival means what I'm about to define. <laughs> Honestly, it means that the Holy Spirit comes on the church and begins to move in the society around. And you get a combination where you get breakthrough of the gospel. Probably the day of Pentecost illustrates very well what has happened repeatedly in church history in the last 2,000 years. So you've got 120 people who really love Jesus, who actually are very convinced he's risen from the dead because they've seen him, and who are very sincere and are in fact, by the way, praying, and are meeting together regularly to pray, 
but they are 120 very ordinary people. They are not the movers and shakers of the first century. They are, have no real influence, for example, in the Roman Empire, which rules the whole of the known world virtually, all around the Mediterranean. They have no connections with the Senate in Rome, you know, remotely. They are nobodies to the guys who call the shots in the Roman Empire. They are not really of any significance in the little country where they are, which is Israel. They're not really that important to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, they're again nobodies. So you've got to get that they're intellectually not giants. So the philosophical sort of mighty men of that era would probably have Greek thinking and, you know, the, the Greeks are dealing with the thinking, the philosophy, the Romans are dealing with the power and the social control. These people are not in anybody's radar at that level. They are 120 very ordinary Jewish people. And they love God, and they believe Jesus is raised from the dead. And then something comes on them, the Holy Spirit. And it, it doesn't start with them suddenly writing petitions. They go out and they talk to the people they meet. That's what, they literally come out the door and start talking about it. And the people they meet, who are in a city that crucified Jesus a few weeks earlier seem to be ready to hear what they say. So as they speak about Jesus, people say, well, what should we do then? Instead of saying, oh, you're a load of nuts. I mean, some people do say they're drunk and loads of nuts, but a lot of people don't. And 3,000 people, 3,000 get saved in a day. Now that is a little model of what can happen in revival. And historically, it happens again and again. That is... You can't switch it on. You can't make it happen. You can prepare for it. You can be obedient as far as you know, like those 120 were, praying and waiting and doing what Jesus told them to do. And then suddenly from heaven, something comes on them which gives them a holy boldness and they find that, they, although they didn't know when they went out the door, they find that the, the people they speak to are sort of open, or a lot of them are, to what they talk about. That, is a breakthrough of the Spirit. And I tell you what, it happens repeatedly historically. It's happened many times in our country. Why not in our day? If this is a Tozer thing, why, why not now? I believe it can happen. I believe it happened before, it can happen before I go to be with the Lord, and I'm getting older now. I, 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 I think we're going to faithful, we're going to pray, we're going to do it. We can't switch things, but I think there's a sense in my spirit, God wants to do something. The dark is pretty dark. That's when the light starts shining. So let's pray for real breakthrough, which is link, linking to my last point, uh, which is about the nation. So the church it comes upon, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, but then we look for the nation to be touched. And if you go to Isaiah 64, verses 1 and 2, uh, this, I want to give the context. This is in the middle of a big prayer in Isaiah, a magnificent prayer. It's worth reading through from 63, 7, verse 7, through to 64, verse 12. There is a, a great prayer offered by the man of God, Isaiah, in a time of national decline. That's what it is. That's its context. Isaiah is offering this magnificent prayer in a time of national decline. Now, in it are these little, we'll take a few quotes from it. Look at this one, verses 1 and 2. Oh to God, oh that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you as when the fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Now in its context, don't mishear this, this is not about like blow them up, 
sort them out. It's God, manifest your presence and come. Shake them out of their lethargy. Shake them out of their darkness. And it's a valid prayer. I mean, I, I, I feel that. I mean, I don't want... I mean, people talk about, is the judgment on the land and that sort of thing? I mean, I hope there's mercy. I, there could be judgment, but let's pray for mercy. Let's pray for a breakout of God's mercy and spirit. Oh God, come and show yourself in our day. And what he goes on to do, Isaiah, is he associates himself with the nation he's in. So he's not standing holier than now, pointing the finger. Let's read the next one. You pop it up. This is uh, further on in 64, I think, uh, verse, a few verses on. It says this, All of us, so he's talking about himself, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. I mean, we live in a nation where less than 3% would even say they ever go to a church. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Then he goes on, next one. Let's put the next one up. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. So he prays that. This is the... Same man praying. He says, this is the state we're in, Lord. We've got nothing to offer. You should judge us, really. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. O oh, Lord, look upon us, we pray. I mean, we need to let these men, these godly giants, just affect our thinking and our praying. This is what you do in a nation you feel is going to pot. In a situation, a culture, you think, how do we help? That's some nice stuff. It always is. But it, what a mess. And you say, God, we're all part of this. Please be merciful. Pour out your spirit. Bring hope to all. I definitely, firmly, totally believe that it would be better for every human being in Bristol to know Jesus. There isn't anyone of any background, cultural, religion that I think it would be better for them never to know Jesus. Do you agree with that? Well, that's what I think. And class, I think Prince Charles, down to some poor soul, drunk in the gutter, they all need to know Jesus. They all need to know Jesus. Any parameter you want to give me, the gospel is for all. And they will all be better off if they know Jesus. They have more hope, more help, and, and, and that some things will be uncomfortable, but it will be far better for them to know Jesus. Amen? The gospel is, honestly, is the answer. And I think it fuels your prayers when you get that. I mean, I've watched over the years various um, man-made attempts, I suppose is one way of putting it, uh, of just sort of correcting uh, life in our nation. I, I don't want to get into it in great detail, but I'm old enough, and an old man can indulge himself a little bit, I've seen uh, a, quite a socialist government in the 70s and very, uh, very high sort of powers for the trade unions and uh, quite, quite a leftish government. Then in the 80s, I've seen a, quite a right-wing sort of thing develop with Margaret Thatcher, quite a market forces thing. Then you've seen the middle way of Blair and perhaps Cameron, you could argue. And there are bits you can say, that's quite good, or that was helpful, that rebalanced that and that. I get all that. But in those same years and beyond... I haven't really seen a breakout of the gospel to the degree I want to see. And none of those parties and political philosophies have solved the real problems in people's lives. Not really. They honestly haven't. And because they don't get to the real 
issue, which is the human heart. And, 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 and actually, the more I've looked at it, I thought, the gospel is the only real answer. In actual fact, moral confusion, dysfunction, and misery, really, has probably multiplied in those years, although sometimes it's been more economically prosperous. But actually, the real heart needs are not met outside Jesus. I honestly, honestly believe it. I see a few heads nodding. I'm sure you agree with me. That fires us to say, we are, the church has got the answer. The church of Jesus has the answer for our nation. We've got to say, God, come upon us. Let's finish with this Habakkuk quote. This is Habakkuk, a different prophet, praying. Look what he says. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. What a great prayer. Isn't that great? Habakkuk 3.2. Lord, we've heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds. We've seen you do it again and again historically. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. In what would be justifiable, your wrath, remember mercy. Let's not end up pointing the finger at people and saying, oh, what a, I can do it as an old man. It's easy to do. What a terrible state the world's in. Well, when I was young, you know, you know, I could take you any sort of statistic uh, and, and say, oh, it's terrible. I don't want to do that. I want to pray for the gospel. And, and, and although I do want to address the very real needs in our nation, I do want to write petitions, and I do sometimes want to uh, do activist things. I'm not really dealing with the real problem if it hasn't got the gospel in it. So even though I want to help the poor, it must be with a freedom to bring Jesus. So with the works, there are the words and the wonders, we hope, so we can sometimes pray and see a complete revolution in someone's life overnight. We look for that. But we know mostly it will be slower, but we bring the words of Jesus, not just the works of Jesus. The gospel really is the answer. So as we finish this morning, come on, if you're thirsty, and maybe you stopped at the first point of the three points, that's great, because that's the right one to start at. God, I need you afresh in my life. I'm thirsty. Meet with me, Jesus. In the church, cry out for the Holy Spirit, the glory of Lord, to be known on the church. And don't miss out praying for our nation. Oh God, rend the heavens. Come, turn the tide in our nation, in our day, and in our generation.